Welcome to Constructed Futures. I'm Hugh Seaton. Today I'm here with James Benham, CEO and co-founder of JB Knowledge and author of Be Your Own VC. As some of you may know, James kind of invented Contech as a concept. He certainly recognized it and gave it the name. So he brings a lot to this conversation and a lot to the idea of Be Your Own VC and so on. So James, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Hugh. It's good to good to hear your voice and good to talk. Obviously, we, you know I've known each other for a while, so good to be on the on the show and chat today. Just you know, I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, so I'm a South Louisiana guy who grew up in a family of people who didn't use computers. <laughs> so my mom and dad didn't. We had one phone with a rotary dial and one TV with rabbit ears, and that was it. Those were the um, days. Yeah, you know, I was born in the late seventies, and uh, it was a simpler time. But I, I got a computer when I was about twelve, and just fell in love with technology hard, like immediately. And in my middle school, my high school taught a lot of computer science because I went to these really technical nerd schools in in Baton Rouge that were super fun. And so, just fell in love with tech, fell in love with programming. And then this crazy thing called bulletin board systems was really popular at the time because there was no internet. And then this really crazy thing called the internet came around right around when I got into high school and just, you know, got super, super involved in, in running an internet service provider and building gopher sites and putting up, standing up FTP sites. And so that's my background is, you know, pretty technical, really enjoyed building stuff, really enjoyed hosting stuff, really enjoyed the internet and technology. Spent part of my childhood, we traveled to Mexico a lot. My dad flew doctors down for free medical mission work, got doing eye surgery and dental work. And so I kind of became fluent in Spanish along the way, lived down there for a couple of summers and all that merged together, went to Texas A&M, the world's finest institute of higher education, joined the Corps of Cadets and, and did the ROTC thing, got a degree in accounting, got a master's in business, did a couple of internships and decided that wasn't my path and decided to start a business, which I'm still running today, 21 years later. So I started in my dorm room with a few thousand bucks and a dream. And we've got about 270 employees today around the world. Huge presence in Latin America, which is kind of how Mexico plays into things because ended up opening an office in Argentina, actually. All the Spanish came in handy. And so that's really a little bit about me. I'm like a compulsive hobbyist. I get bored really fast. So I'm like a hardcore pilot. I fly every week, really love flying airplanes and play guitar and piano and sing. And I'm, I'm uh, dancing in Nutcracker this weekend. I'm in the ballroom scene with the parents, you know, where we do ballroom there. So I just really enjoy, you know, life and technology and art and really love business. And I've been fortunate to have a, amazing co-founders, my dad, my, one of my best friends from high school, Sebastian, and, you know, 270 awesome, hard charging teammates that, that pull with me every day. And we're one of those rare tech companies that's bootstrapped that didn't raise money and didn't go to VCs. And so that's you know kind of my background leading to today. And let's talk a little bit about along the way, you know, a lot of people will know you for the content crew and some of the things you do on the media side. You do a lot of great speaking and there was a tour for a number of years. Yeah. But not everyone knows that you actually have founded a couple of tech companies. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So the original dream when I started the business was to build a bootstrapped engine that would allow us to build product companies. And so straight out of the gate, I personally wrote a small business ERP system that would do accounting, project management, CRM back in 01. And I used it to run my own company. And today we still use it. So all of our, you know, almost 300 people log in every day and record their time, manage our books, you know, manage our projects in that system. 
And we would do websites and custom software for people and we would generate a profit and we used that profit to build our products. And the first five products didn't really sell well. I might've sold 10 or 12 or 15 or 20 copies of the software. Of course, it, we've always built web-based software. So it was all licensed subscription web-based software. But in 2006, a friend of my dad's said, Hey, uh, this bidding system you built, you should apply that to construction. I said, well, I don't know anything about construction. And my friend said, well, let me introduce you to my client. He introduced me to map construction. My friend was a guy named Steve Jordan who, and Steve introduced me to, to map construction and went and met with them. And they, they saw this bidding software I had written for my ERP. And they said, Hey, if you change like these 40 things, we'll license that from you. And, and they did. So in January of 07, we went live with map in Dallas. And I didn't understand that at the time and still today, Dallas is one of the largest construction markets in the, in the country. And so all these other contractors started to see invitations to bid going from our software and asking for it. And then we advertised heavily on Google. And so we actually ended up building a construction invitation to bid plan distribution and pre-qualification tool called smart bid. And for 12 years, built it, operated it. And then I sold it to I square foot construct connect in 2018, but we had probably a quarter million subs using it at the time, 1100 major CGCs, 143, the ENR 400. And we sent out about 10,000 projects a week to bid. And it was just an amazing experience through that path to help market our services and our products. I built a, a podcast with my two co-founders that became three co-founders because it was, you know, Rob McKinney and Josh Bone. And then Jeff Sample came on a little bit after that. And so the four of us ran that podcast and they all ended up working with me at JB Knowledge for a period of time. And then uh, we had a consulting practice and then we built a construction technology roadshow that ran for five years. And then we have a construction technology report that's been running for 10 years and it's actually running again. We just transitioned that to Texas A&M Construction Science. They're running it right now and did 450 speaking engagements at construction organizations. So it was all there to, to help get the word out and to meet people. And then it ended up being its own thing on its own. But SmartBid was was a great joy to run and build and operate in and really get to deep dive on a pre-construction problem and, and solve a lot of problems for people. And today we still sell software to contractors, but we, we build all risk management software now. And so we do have a lot of construction clients because we have an integration to Procore for certificate of insurance tracking. That's our, our smart compliance product. And then we've got an, a new product called Terra. So, uh, you know, still, still nerding it out and still building software, but along the way kind of built a media brand <laughs> and ended up with like a million listens, I think on content crew, we had around 10,000 readers a year on the report, still have that. And, uh, you know, it ended up doing some really fun things in construction and helping a, helping a great industry out. You did something that isn't that, you know, the normal way, or at least the way that people read about in terms of building a product and building a software company, you know, you never took on money, as you say not even in the beginning, which often is what happens, right? Someone to get friends and family at least, but you were able to avoid even that. Talk to me a little bit about what drove that decision. There must've been moments along the way where you said, hey man, if I took on a million bucks, we could grow 10X faster or whatever the yeah. metric is. You chose not to. Talk a little bit about how that process kind of went on in your head. Yeah, well, I've always, I've had co-founders, right? So it was me and my my best friend from high school, Sebastian, my dad, but we we only we only chewed up if you include the loans. I think we only used about sixty eight thousand dollars total, like total total to get this started because it was an initial five thousand bucks, another sixty three thousand dollars of loans. I think we paid off within two years. I mean, <laughs> when you look at the seed rounds of companies now, totally. and they're like, 
we raised a million on an eight million pre money val. I'm like, yeah. oh my god, and we haven't built anything yet. Yeah, and they still haven't built anything. I'm like, we we used like like what they would burn. What they burn in two weeks was our entire startup capital. And, and so the the key thing was finding a service that we could sell immediately that would generate a profit that we could consume to build the the long play. And so I, I call bootstrapping the long, slow, painful way to control your business and <laughs> and build what you want and not have a boss other than your customer. Your customer is always your boss. And right. I, it's the boss that you you love, right? Like I love working for my customers. But I'm the board and I'm the chief executive. So with Sebastian at my side and my dad at my side, I mean, it's just been an amazing 21 years. And we've had the ability to keep our team together. You know, when we sold SmartBid, I think 90 to 95% of the staff stayed with us and we sold the product and we just pivoted those staff to building a new product, which is so rare. Yeah. And, and bootstrapping is really not as common in the product business. In service businesses, it's fairly common. In product business, it's not because there's this just giant sense of uh, almost overinflated sense of urgency that like if they don't raise a ton of money and spend it all right now, they're going to miss the opportunity. And the reality is that's usually not the, the case. And so, you know, we saw an opportunity in SmartBid and it took us, you know, quite a while to even get the first client on board, nine months. And then after that, it took another, you know, year to get the next seven. I mean, it was long, slow, painful. It took 12 years to do what might have taken a, a venture funded company six years to do as far as the number of clients, the amount of revenue, but we didn't have to go raise tens of millions of dollars of investment capital. So, you know, it's just really about uh, being able to make the customer your number one boss and not worry about raising money, not worry about hopping on that train and having like a capital efficient business that is designed to generate cash. Because like that really, I mean, Hugh deeply bothers me as a longtime business owner. When I was 12, I started my first business cutting grass and I made money immediately. Like I borrowed 380 bucks from my dad to buy an orange Aaron's lawnmower. I like the first, you know, 20 lawn jobs. I, I took all the money and then paid him back. And then after that, all the money was mine. And then I saved up money and I bought things as I could afford them. And when I got after out of college, I did Dave Ramsey's classes on no debt. And I did the, you know, the debt snowball where I paid everything off. And uh, so I'm kind of hardcore about like individuals, households need to be profitable. Government should not be. Uh, that's why the federal deficit bothers me so much. Businesses should be designed to generate cash, generate a profit and be ec economically and financially sustainable. And bootstrapping is, in my opinion, the best way to design a business from the ground up to be a cash generating machine instead of a cash consuming machine that can never actually turn a profit. Cause you see, you, you see a lot of that where they just have to get acquired because on their own, they just have, they don't have the ability to raise their price enough or lower their expenses enough to generate a profit. And you're seeing it. It's a fascinating time. I'm glad the book was delayed a year getting out because right, because right now <laughs> it's like, holy crap, all the roosters have come home right now. And you're seeing all the major tech companies lay off because now investors are not willing to tolerate losses anymore. Well, this is a good moment to kind of take a step back and say part of why we're doing this podcast now instead of some other time is the book. Your book, Be Your Own VC, has just come out. And you lay out 10 principles that you've already covered a couple of them in this conversation, but it's worth kind of taking a step back into it and saying, you know, this is the best time you possibly could be out there giving people a message for, even if they did take on money, there's yeah. points in here that still are relevant. You know, you have a whole chapter, debt sucks, which anyone who's been in debt would 
probably agree with that unless they're in real estate. But you know, you go through these, and whether you're in a position to bootstrap now, or you know, you're just doing your best to to get lean and so on. It's a lot in here for folks that are thinking of starting a business, are in the middle of it, are in the early stages, so on. Because what you're really talking about, among other things, is business discipline, right? Is saying, 100%. don't get ahead of your skis and don't say, oh my gosh, I got to get another $10 million or we can't survive. I want to talk a little bit about how you see this being so relevant to right now. Yeah, I want to add one other angle to the comment because the book was really designed for three audiences. The audience you described is audience number one. People who are going to build are in the process of building or operating an existing business, right? Like that that group of entrepreneurs is audience number one. Audience number two is for venture capitalists because I'm a limited partner in venture in VC funds. And audience number two is for VC funds who want to instill financial discipline in their investments. And I'm one of those. Um, I want to invest in companies who have a path to profitability and who have the ability to take the money they do raise and get to a profitable business. And audience number three is for corporate entrepreneurs. And there's a whole chapter on the on these these folks. And I, I had two examples that I that I interviewed in there that are both construction related, talking about how they drive and bootstrap innovation at an existing large company, because bootstrapping principles really, really, really help existing organizations and innovation groups learn how to self-fund their innovation efforts instead of constantly raising money from their organization. So the bootstrapping principles apply to intrapreneurs and large corporations. It applies to entrepreneurs building, starting, running their own business. And it applies to people who are funding businesses who want to drive capital efficiency because the B and C and D round aren't going to come like they thought they was going to, and they don't want the businesses to fail. So they have to pivot from a fundraising train to a, you know, eat what you've already raised and generate a profit before you run out of money. And so that's why, that's why I really dove into it. Yeah. I mean, number one, you know, like rule number one, cash is king. And you saw this happen in the complete and utter collapse of the crypto markets. And we're not done with the crypto winner. In my opinion, we're in the the early middle stage of the crypto fallout. But you know, they lost track of cash. If you look at what happened with FTX, they he didn't know how much money he had. He didn't know where it was deployed. He didn't know what he how much he was burning. I mean, there, there were just all kinds of issues with financial discipline and and really having a good firm grip over the business. And so that's why I talk so much about cash because it's the fuel that that drives business. It's the point of business is to generate cash. And it's also the fuel the engine consumes. And so you've got to really place a higher priority on cash. And that's why it's so important to look at this regardless of what what stands you're in, because you know, you know, it's it's always better to have it to be running a a division of a company or a business or a or a VC fund that's that's generating its own capital than one that has to constantly go to the till for more. And you know, I have to ask, as you're writing this and you were thinking about it. How much of this is is a little bit like that old book, Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten? I mean, I, there's a lot of great lessons and, and insights in here, but a lot of it also boils down to, guys, you've got to stick to your knitting. Then you earn the right to go and do crazy things. Yeah. If, you don't, if you're not making money, it, your strategy is not relevant. Yeah. I mean, look at, there's so many businesses you could look at and say that, right? That they they get really obsessed with a big disruption and they never learn how to make money. And, you know, if you look at, and, and Elon's a fascinating one to look at. Let's, let's exclude the discussion about Twitter right now and just look at, you know, he had to generate and, and consume a large amount of capital with SpaceX and with Tesla to, to get them on the rails. Right. But those businesses are generating cash now. Right. And not, not every quarter, but 
but they they have the ability. They they got a, he got them on a path to profitability. And now let's talk about Twitter. The first thing he did at Twitter was say, "We don't need this many people to run this application. We've got to cut expenses way back. You know, we have to instill financial discipline that they themselves were not willing to instill in their own organization." And so one of the things that makes him effective as a business person is that he's driving these organizations towards profitability. Yeah. You know, and that's that's an important conversation to have all the time. Uh, Even, I mean, 100% of the time is when does this go profitable and it can't be too far out? Even in the nonprofit world, they have a, a saying, there's no, there's no mission without margin. And I think you could argue that Elon's view of the world, because apart from Twitter, which you're right, is we can hold that. It's also very early days to have to say anything about it. But too early. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's just, it's sadly very public, but whatever. But, you know, in both cases, he, he had a real mission and he said, yeah, but we got to make money to be able to achieve that. In fact, a lot of, I think Star, the whole point of Starlink, right, was to generate oh, cash 100%. for the rockets. <laughs> like, yeah. No, no, he's, he's bootstrapping Mars. Yeah. So just, just to understand what he's doing, by tonnage, SpaceX is by far the largest shipper of cargo into space by tonnage. Yeah. Like nobody comes close to SpaceX on tonnage going into space. So he's using his cargo operations and his Starlink operations to finance Mars. That's brilliant. <laughs> it is. And, and it gets yeah. back to your first principle, which is cash is first. Cash is king. Yeah. And, 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 and principle number three, which is build what you have to so you can build what you want to. If, if you look at a lot of businesses, they start out doing what they know they can generate a profit doing so they can build the thing they really want to build. And if you relate that, related this back to a construction company, you would say, look, you know how to generate cash with your, with your fees that you charge as a general contractor or a subcontractor, the margin you're going to generate. What you really want to do, let's say you're, a, you're, a, you're an MEP subcontractor and your real dream is to, to be multi-trade prefab or you want to be at least single trade prefab, moving to multi-trade prefab, and you, at the end of the day, want to be a manufacturer, you can generate a profit in, in that business by doing the, let's say, less interesting, less innovative work of on-site fabrication doing mechanical electrical plumbing work, right? Yep. Let's say you're just doing the M and the P, mechanical and plumbing work, while you build the prefab operation that's going to drive the future of your business. Now, I'm thinking of a couple of friends of mine right now that are doing exactly that in the MEP space, and they're bootstrapping their way into building a pretty major manufacturing operation that's going to be very digitally centric, and they, they already are game changers. They're changing the very nature of how uh, mechanical and plumbing work is built and installed, but they're doing it with their own funds. And so that's why sometimes it's the long, slow, painful, hard way that people don't want to do because it takes too long. But it allows those companies to take their time and learn because I think I told you about opportunity windows are generally longer than people give them credit for. When you get in a hurry and you think that like the opportunity is going to disappear, sometimes you, you actually will be too far ahead of the game and the business actually needs another three years to mature. I've got an example, augmented reality headsets and, v and VR. Hugh, how many of these have you and I looked at? I worked in a company that that made the software that goes into it. I that is exactly a pain I know very well. And you're at, you know the guy that founded the company I worked at used to say there's no difference between being wrong and being er and being early. Or at least it looks the same. It looks the, the same. There is yeah. a difference, but it looks the same. Like eventually you're vindicated by If you can make it that long. Eventually you're vindicated, but you're only truly vindicated if you survive. Uh, rule number 4 by the way, number one rule of business is to survive. If you survive long enough for the 
early timing to become on time. You know, Microsoft generated enough cash in all their other business operations to fund and finance the multi-year, probably decade-long project that HoloLens is. And it's still only in version two, and we don't know what it's going to end up being in the end. And, you know, we we all thought that by now we'd all be wearing AR headsets all the time or not. We thought that VR would be super mainstream and people are kind of over it a little bit. I think everybody forgot that Second Life has been around for 20 years and, you know, VR is not a new thing. The met, you know, The metaverse is not exactly a new thing. It's been a spectacular failure for Facebook because the reality is if the metaverse ever really happens in the form that they're saying it will, we're still a ways out from the hardware and software being good enough because one of the chief complaints about it is that it's glitchy. And if you use augmented reality headsets, there were a lot of companies like Daiquiri that that came in and raised a ton of money on a super urgent timeline and into being kind of really early to the party and a party that wasn't ready yet. And because they didn't have a profitable operation, they ended up liquidating, right? Well, I wonder if some of what you're also talking about is there's external pressure that hypes up the, the sense of urgency. And a great example of that was when Facebook bought Oculus. All of a sudden, everybody thought, wow, it's, it's validated, it's real. And tons of money went in, exactly like you're saying. People raised pretty obscene amounts of money for how little was being spent in that sector. And they all died. With a couple of exceptions, like the company I used to work for, the Glimpse Group, where their main focus day-to-day was drive sales, sales. If it's services, okay, we'll do it. If it's building software for someone, you know what, we'll do it. If it's selling software that we have in a, in a box, of course, that's the best as a SaaS product. But the point was, cash was everyday conversation, not you know, once a quarter or once at the end of the month. Yeah. It's, it's just something I think that people need to, to, to keep at the front of their mind is that, you know, maybe the opportunity window to build this new technology, let's say you're a construction company and you want to innovate in the area of prefab or modular or whatever else you want to innovate on. You want to, you want to bring laser scanners everywhere. You want to have AR headsets and you want to 3d print buildings. Like what's going on with icon. Like I thought 3d printing would be here a few years ago. And we're just seeing the major icon Lennar JV partnership in Austin where they're actually 3D printing a whole neighborhood, which is just so cool. And I love that it's happening in my state. We're just seeing the beginnings of that. So, you know, it turns out the opportunity window is bigger and it's going to take a longer runway and you it's going to consume more cash than you thought, more time than you thought. And because there are some companies that are actively doing things that are generating a profit, they're going to survive. They're going to outlast the ones that aren't. It's an important set of principles for sure. I want to shift gears real quick to a couple of your principles that feel like wisdom. You know, you talk about choosing partners, you talk about values, 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 Um, and even innovation doesn't happen in your spare time. It feels like wisdom. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's fine to to bring insights, but there's a deeper way of looking at things that these seem to encapsulate. You want to talk a little bit about how this is really seasoning, right? Over time, you've learned lessons, you've seen things work, you've seen things not work. You've seen lessons that take a couple of years to happen sometimes. Yeah. Talk a little bit about how, how you view Kamal's business wisdom. Well, I am fortunate to have a father who has been very interested in my life and has invested an incredible amount of time in mentoring me. I'm also really fortunate to have gone to AM, been in the Corps of Cadets at AM, and have discovered some people who stepped in as mentors to me and have can maintained consistent mentorship with me for a long time. And and so they have poured their wisdom into me for a long time. So a lot of this is just me kind of assimilating all the things I've been taught. And then of course, 21 years of 
you know, of tough discussions and difficult decisions and tough situations and all the things that drive you in business. And so, yeah, common sense isn't always common and wisdom isn't always common. And, you know, it it does very often have to be taught because in all of these cases, I've seen people come in and, and make really, really, really bad mistakes because they just didn't either have any concept of history around that topic. I mean, you know, the old adage, if you're not a student of history, you're a victim of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that applies big time. Like if you don't read case studies, if you don't read business books, if you don't read history books, then you're, you're going to be a victim of repeating the same thing, the same mistakes over and over again and learning the hard way. One of my favorite sci-fi series was Battlestar Galactica. And they, they would say, this has all happened before. This will all happen again. Because at the end of the day, humans are still humans. They still behave in a very similar way. It's like Value number five, choose your partners as carefully as you choose your spouse, because there's so many people that are very flippant about choosing their teams and they're flippant about it. They, they, well, I need a technical co-founder. I'm just going to go find one. Well, how, how long are you going to spend working with them before you realize if there's an alignment there? You know, and we talk about values a lot. Jim Collins said that the difference between good companies and sustainably great ones is that they have values and that they stick to them and they use them every day, as opposed to companies who haven't defined it. And I have a phrase, if you can't repeat it, you don't believe it. If you don't know your values and you don't utilize them regularly, then they're not really your values. You know, like we have we have six and they're in an acronym and I'm, I make everybody learn them and I learn them and we talk about them on a regular basis. Now, your values can be vastly different and you're going to screw up on your values because you're human, you're imperfect, you're flawed. But it, but having that discussion is, is really, really, really important. But if you look at most businesses, most organizations, most innovation committees at construction companies, there's no playbook. There's no standard operating procedures for how the business is run. There might be for how the project is run, but not how the business is run. They have a really, really hard time exactly articulating what the values of the organization are. They might have them on the website, but no one knows them. They can't repeat them and they're not used every day. You know, it's, these things are really not truly ingrained until it's a process and it's a playbook and you can follow it and it's in an actual book you can pick up and look at and read and talk about and you know then it's not real you're just saying you have culture and values but no one can articulate it and that's a that's a really big problem and that's why a lot of innovation committees at companies fail because they don't have a process they don't have values they are flippant with who they pick to be on the team they didn't they didn't put rules in for how they run their meetings. They allow cell phones and meetings. Like they have electronics and meetings right. and people go in and don't pay attention. They sit on their phone or email. They, they, they have, they have these just basic fundamental flaws. Their meetings end up sucking. They have no process to drive innovation. And within six months, it all falls apart. And the same thing happens in companies. They just end up operating SOMP, seat in my pants. And you know, SOMP, you can make a lot of money in SOMP. You can build businesses and make a lot of money without a process, without, without values, without, you know, fundamental principles, but it's, it's a scale. lot, it's a, it's a lot harder. <laughs> it's a lot, it's a lot higher rate of failure. And it's tough to scale. I mean, half the point of values other than the fact that you get better individual outcomes is it scales because you've now got something. I love your point. If you can't repeat it, you don't believe it. I mean, that means that it's clear enough and it's been thought through enough that it's something you can transmit to someone else and check if they understand you, Yeah, which is huge. Yeah, we put our values at JB Knowledge into an acronym, you know, DV's the do the right thing even when no one's looking, be self-motivated and resourceful, show respect to everyone, be a JBK ambassador 24-7, think lean, have each other's backs, enjoy the ride and geek out. And I don't have that in front of me right now, right? I just use the acronym, memorize the phrases, and then I think about it. 
And then yeah. we evaluate when we evaluate our people every 90 days, we evaluate them on on how on how well they adhere to our values. And if they get their job, want their job, have their capacity to do their job. That's how we evaluate people. And it's every 90 days. So we talk about the values a lot. And then I do a quarterly state of the company where I repeat the values again. It really helps us drive it home. It doesn't mean we're perfect. We still, we have problems. We have issues. We have stuff that happens all the time. But we do have a framework on how to address it. And that's the difference, right? And I, I think it would give people a better shot at being more successful, driving innovation, if they were building financially sustainable organizations and if they followed a basic set of rules and playbook that that gave them a, a better likelihood of outcoming. That's what I like about bootstrapping and the mentality is yeah. it forces you to be hardcore about surviving, thriving, generating cash, and being a sustainable business and not one that's dependent on the fundraising prowess of the either the executive sponsor or the fundraising prowess of the executive in the company that's raising money from VCs. It, it, it's much more self-determinant on how well you're serving your customers and <laughs> if you're getting your job done and delivering value. That's That should be the determiner, not if you're going out for your A or B or C round at the right time. Yeah, I love that we ended with what amounts to really good management with a bunch of, well, 10 principles behind it. James, I'm excited. I've read the book. I want everyone else to read it. So I'll, I'll have links to this in the show notes. Thank you for walking through what got you here and where, what you've got to offer. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. No problem. If you want more information, it's uh, go to jamesbenham.com. And uh, the books are available on Amazon, paperback, hardcover, Kindle. And I'm recording the audiobook now. No surprise. I'm doing my own voice work. So expect that it'll be out, it'll be out in about four months. Fantastic. James, thanks again. Thanks a bunch.